Hello everybody, it's me Ross and welcome to a special KOA feature. I'm joined by good old Stuart Watson as we talk about his 10 years of covering town and his story. Stuart, you've seen many ups and downs at the football club and I've just been wanting for a while to have a chat with you about your career so far um, in journalism. Um, before we get started, um, how are you doing my friend? I'm very well, thank you Ross and um, thanks for asking me to do this. Um... Hope people don't get too bored listening to me wanging on about myself for a while. Uh, but uh, yeah, looking forward to this. Should be good. It should be indeed. Um, and just for any inspiring journalism, journalists out there, um, this is just a good little look back at your career. And Stu, everyone has a beginning. Uh, where does it all start for you in terms of your journalism? Did you always want to be a journalist? I did, yeah. There's a lot of people that sort of struggle with knowing what they want to do when, when they grow up at, at school. But I can't actually remember when it was I decided, but it was very early on that I decided I wanted to be a sports journalist. I grew up a uh, huge football fan, like like many people. I was a, I was an Everton fan. Um, came through through my dad, um, despite being an Essex boy, that got got passed on to me. So huge Everton fan, um, and like many young kids, um, just consumed every bit of of content there was on on football um in those days it was it was getting home from school and putting cfax on straight away and um saturday afternoons listening to to five lives and and the updates coming in so so very early on decided that was that was something i wanted to pursue and and kind of built my options at school around it my uh my choices of of courses at, at college and then ultimately did a uh, a multimedia journalism degree at Bournemouth um which which led me on in into the uh, into the career from there and um you've been at the East Anglian Day Times it's your star back then it was the even star and all that sort of stuff the Greenham was still a thing um so how did you sort of come to be where you are now yeah so during my time at uni at Bournemouth I was uh, using my sort of summer and Easter holidays to try and get some bylines and get some some voluntary work under my belt. I, I did a lot of stuff at the Colchester Gazette, was at BBC Essex, um, managed to build up a little small portfolio, which meant that I was able to uh, apply for a job at the EADT and the Ipswich Star. And uh, that was the first job I applied for. And luckily the first job that I got, I was prepared to go into news journalism. I wanted to be a journalist as much as I did want to be a sports journalist. I was prepared to go and do the hard yards in news but thankfully was able to to get in as a sports journalist straight away. So in the summer after I graduated, I went and did a, a paid uh, work placement at BBC Sport during the 2006 World Cup, which was a great experience. And then the day after the World Cup final, uh, I started at the, at the Anglian in the summer of 2006 and, and started very much as a, uh, a junior sports reporter. I did everything but football for uh, several years, but that was that was a fantastic grounding. And um, there's some great pictures of you and the system are doing different things. And um, before we get into Issues Town, of course, you covered Colchester as well um, and non-league. You know, you had to do the hard yards in terms of, you know, covering all the local sides. Um, but what, what would you say other sports you had to cover during that time? Yeah, I, uh, I don't know if people will remember this who, who maybe had the paper sort of during that time. But there was a couple of pull-out supplements, uh, one called Grassroots, which was based very much around sort of um, junior sport in, in the county of Suffolk. There was one called Your Sport, which was uh, everything from sort of archery, power boating, 
uh, all sorts of weird and wonderful things that I, I had the freedom to go out and, and have a try at and, uh, and do things like that. So uh, from there, I kind of did a bit of non-league, as you say. I managed to follow lower stuff all the way to the FA Vars final at Wembley one year. I think that was 2009. And then, uh, yeah, so after that was about three years of, of doing all that sort of stuff. And then um, I think I was 24 when I got the chance to go and cover Colchester United full time and did, did a couple of seasons of them. That was just after, if you remember, the season where Colchester beat Norwich 7-1 on the opening day of the season when Norwich had got just got relegated to, to League One. Um, Paul Lambert then jumped ship to Norwich. In came Aidy Boothroyd at Colchester, who were not long down from the championship themselves. And that was uh, it was that month that I started doing doing Colchester United. So I, I did a couple of seasons of, of covering the U's up and down the country, and then was able to uh, to move on up to be uh, to become chief football writer and cover Ipswich Town, which uh, I've now done for eleven seasons. Actually, I've just uh, had a look at so eleven seasons of, of covering town now. And a lot has changed, as I said, many ups and downs. Many different managers and players have walked through that door and walked out of it as well. Um, before we get into the nuts and bolts of, you know, your, your first game, your favourite player and all that sort of stuff, the, the funny and the worst, best moments, um, I know this is still a question because you're working at the paper at the time, but did you know much about what was going on in Town at the time? Yes and no. Um, as I say, I, I didn't grow up a fan of Ipswich Town. I've, I've mentioned that already, but I did grow up in, I, I grew up in Braintree in Essex, so not a million miles away from from Ipswich there was there was a handful of Ipswich town fans sort of in, in my school growing up but a lot of them tended to look towards the, the London clubs I was a little bit different in sort of supporting Everton as, as I say but obviously I knew the, the history of Ipswich and, uh, and and you know scratching of the surface of Ipswich town there was at a time where you know the, the attacking teams of, of Joe Royal and just missing out on the the playoffs, obviously, year after year before that, under Burley and everything. So I was, I was kind of in in tune with with Ipswich Town, but it was only really when I got to the paper that I really started to to learn a lot more about them. Um, before I started covering Ipswich, uh, you know, I'd, I'd watched sort of from semi from the inside the likes of Elvin King and Derek Davis and Mel Henderson, Dave Allard, people like that, all covering the club and had a, a real chance to kind of spend some time with them and, and learn off of those guys. So. Uh, that was a real invaluable experience and um, got parachuted in on, on Ipswich Town here and there. The first game that I actually covered officially for Ipswich was a green and runner in 2006, a 3-1 home win against Sunderland. Alan Lee got a brace that day. Um, very young, wet behind the ears reporter got, got uh, sent to do that because I think a few people were unavailable and that was a bit of a baptism of fire. That was in the days where you won't remember this, Ross, you actually phoned your copy over to a copy taker. So every uh, various different junctures during the game, you would ring up uh, a lady back in the office and you would you would sing your copy down over the phone, not literally. Uh, and they would they would type it down at the other end and there'd always be a few a few name errors creep in and things like that. But um, yeah, very different days. I think we're going to talk later about how much things have changed. But uh, that, that was the first Ipswich game I, I covered. Yeah, when, when I get told those stories or to, told how things have changed, you know, that's 2006, as you said, like, it's just, it's just, it's mad to, when I hear that. And um, yeah, later in the video, we'll chat about how things have changed from social media to websites to doing videos, podcasts, just like this, you know, 2006. I know you and Mike 
sort of started the trend. I think you're doing non-league sort of videos and stuff like that. We'll, we'll, do, we'll show some clips during the, today's video about that because there's some great, there's some oh, classic ones, classic ones. Um, but let's talk then, Stu. You, you've mentioned your first town game. So your first season, what, what season was that? My first season, I had to look this up earlier, I think, was... Let's have a little look and make sure I get this right. 2011-2012, that was when uh, Ipswich won 3-0 at Bristol City on the opening game of the season. Um, Michael Chopra, the new signing, I think scored two that day. David James was in goal for, for Bristol City and um, that that was the start for me and uh, a lot of excitement after that opening day. Um, and then... Things unraveled quite quickly. It was the seven-one at Peterborough. I think they lost five-five-two at home to to Southampton. The, the game before that as well. So that was that was my first very first season covering Ipswich. Well, so Paul Jewell was the first man you had to do. Pre- what was the press conferences like under Paul Jewell? And you know you've had Mick McCarthy, Paul Hurst, Paul Lambert, Paul Cook, um, Kieran McKenna. You've had a few caretakers in there as well. Um, mm-hmm. Paul Jewell. Quickly, just mention him a little bit. Of course, he didn't have his sex for time at town, but he was your first manager. Your, I know you had Ali Boyfreud and other managers before that, but um, first full season covering it, Tish Town, Paul Jewell was the man in charge. Yeah, the two Colchester managers I had that kind of prepared me were was Ali Boothroyd, as I mentioned, who was the first manager who called me into his office with uh, newspapers spread across his desk and various bits of copy uh, ringed in highlighter pen. That was... Uh, not happy with um, some perceived negative journalism at that time, so that was um, that was the start for me. And then then followed sort of gentleman John Ward, who was um, who had been around the game a long time and, and taught me a lot of of good things. Um, and then Paul Jewell, as you mentioned, when I started Ipswich, and I, I didn't get off on the best of footings with Paul Jewell. Um, I'd done okay in my interview, obviously, to get to get the job uh, at the time. And I think something had got lost in translation along the way because somebody apparently had forewarned Paul Jewell that, oh, the Anglian have hired this new young reporter who's, you know, who's, who's going to be holding the club to account and asking the tough questions. So there was probably an unfair reputation that preceded me. And when I went out to Holland for pre-season that year, I went over to the edge of the training pitch just, just to have a watch of, of training. And I got an interview with, with Paul kind of set up straight after that and, uh, the press officer was summoned out to the centre circle of the pitch and off he walked and left me on the touchline and back he came, having sort of had a, uh, a conversation with, with Jewel out of earshot of me and said, no, manager doesn't doesn't want you here watching watching this. Can you go and wait in the lobby, please, for, for the start time of the interview? And um, so that wasn't the, the greatest of starts with Paul Jewel. And I, th- I think we managed to sort of uh, work our way back, back to a reasonable point, but... Um, Obviously, it doesn't. It helps if uh, if things are going well on on the pitch. Um, you can always start off on start off with the best of intent with managers, but uh, obviously things th- things didn't work out for Paul Jewell. And uh, towards the end, it, we went through that sort of cycle that I've gone through many times now of, of being on good terms. Then the manager starting to get a bit bit snarky and a bit snide and a bit sharp with you at, at various times, which is an occupational hazard. And and then the sort of sad resigned period where you know it's kind of a, a dead man walking and I'll always remember uh, I think it was a game at Hull where you know I could just see from his body language he was sort of slumped forward and and he was just about to get up out of his seat and, and leave when I thought I need to ask here are you are you considering your future at all Paul and 
And he said, yes, yeah, I am. I've got to go away and really think about this. And, and it wasn't long after that that we had uh, the infamous night where he didn't turn up post-Derby because he was, inverted commas, watching the DVD. And, uh, and he was gone not long after that. Yeah, and so I want to stick with um, managers quickly because you've, as I said, you've gone through a lot of them. Um, up next was Mick McCarthy. What a character, I'm sure. That was a dream for quotes and stuff like that. Um, of course, he had to come in when we were, you know, rock bottom um, and then, you know, made us survive. Then we got into a playoffs in 2014-15. Um, of course, the ending of Mick was, wasn't great either because it got turned toxic with the fans. But what was your relationship overall? You know, it was very much um, probably a love-hate sort of thing at times because um, Mick doesn't mind speaking to the press but there is times he's probably not always wanting to but um what was your relationship with Mick over that that time yeah Mick McCarthy's probably um had the greatest influence on me as a as a journalist as an interviewer he certainly sharpens up your your interviewing technique I think um people if you look now if you google sort of Mick McCarthy best quotes there's one that always ends up in there which is which is after a game at Leeds on a Tuesday night where Ipswich had led 1-0. I think McGoldrick had scored. Uh, I think Ross McCormack got a penalty. It was the year Ipswich were... I think it was the year before the playoffs, but um, there was a chance that they might get in the playoffs. And I'd had an absolute technological nightmare that night. My laptop had died on me. I'd lost all my copy. I was, you know, you have to file on the whistle in order to get your copy in, in the, the next day's newspaper. And I was really up against it on that. And I was I was flustered. And then out came Mick into the press conference and uh, I said to him, Mick, some people might say that's two points dropped. And uh, I got the reply, well, some people can fuck off, excuse my language. And uh, um, that that was a reminder to me that just think about your wording of your questions sometimes. Mick didn't like the idea of you kind of hiding behind somebody else. Own, own the question. If there's something you want to ask, say it in the correct manner. People will remember, I think, a, a television interviewer with Roy Keane previously saying, I've been asked to ask you about your future and, and getting the uh, the Roy Keane stare back, which uh, I was on the end of a couple of times um, when sort of parachuted into cover town when Roy was in charge as well. So between him and Mick McCarthy, that really made me sort of sharpen up how, how you ask your questions and making sure you sort of own them properly. And... Um... Some people may not know this. And I don't know if you want me to share it, but you're sort of behind the Facebook Live sort of thing. Of course, Mick McCarthy, we were doing a lot of Facebook Lives under him. Mm. Um, so a lot of town fans got to witness his um, press conferences. And, you're, of course, you're the guy who were leading it. Brenner Wally was the one, um, of course, BBC Suffolk commentator. He was sort of leading it. But then you'd come in and ask a few more questions. So what was that like, that that period where you knew town fans were watching live as well? Yeah, mix what was it, six years that he had in in charge, and it was kind of a tale of two halves, wasn't it? Um, I felt really sorry for Mick towards the end of that because he was the kind of human shield for for Marcus Evans. He was the man that had to come up and and front the press a ridiculous amount of times. Really, when you think about it, we speak sometimes to managers four times a week after the match Saturday, then on a Monday before the Tuesday game, then after the game on the Tuesday, then once more leading up to Saturday. And there's only, when things aren't going well, and when there was this big sort of question, big heavy question mark hanging over Mick, who was coming to the end of his contract, it felt like the club was getting a bit stale. And I was writing week after week about death by a thousand cuts and a club that was kind of going nowhere. And what do you think about your future, Mick? That wasn't wasn't a particularly pleasant time for anybody 
involved really but you're, you're right those Facebook lives at that time the press conferences were going out live to the internet they became almost sort of mini events that's what people were kind of saying oh, I can't wait for this this is going to be great and that, that was a bit of a sort of a pressurized situation but I'm I'm, I'm kind of quite pleased how I handled myself during that period I, I, it's a really fine line between maintaining that delicate relationship with the football club but also remembering to represent the fans the people that you're there to ask questions on on behalf of so people tell me that they they started to notice Mick kind of uh throttling his water bottle in anticipation of some of the questions that that were coming his way but um yeah that was a, that was a real period that again sort of helped sort of develop me and, and sharpen me as, as a journalist for sure and um, then we had three Pauls after that. Um, so you had Paul Jaw originally, but then you had three more came in. Paul Hurst, a new era again. Um, he didn't last that long. Then, we, of course, we had Paul Lambert coming in, then relegation confirmed. Third tier of football for the first time since the 50s. And, of course, then Paul Cook came in. Um, so let's quickly just mention all those three Pauls. Um, all very different characters. Very different football. Um, Paul Hurst wasn't here long enough for you to get to know him a little bit. But um, where do you want to go? <clears throat> I'll zip through them all quick as I can. Um, Paul Hurst, I liked from from day one. I thought I was quite open about the fact that I think Ipswich needed to go down this the, the younger, modern type of manager route post Mick McCarthy. I think Marcus Evans reluctantly went against his better judgment and went down that route and went and went for Paul Hurst, who in many ways did a lot of the things that that people were calling for. We need someone to come in and, and shake up a club that's got a little bit comfortable, but he just went too far with it. And maybe there were some alarm bells. I, I remember I went into his office and did the first big profile piece of, of Paul Hurst. And he talked to, I asked him, you know, is there any, have you got to manage players differently than you have in the lower leagues? And he said, no, or, or you know, you players are players and you manage them accordingly. But I, having seen some of the differences in players from, throughout the leagues, I just felt that when you're managing people that are earning that bit more money at a higher level, player power goes up a notch when you get to championship level and, and player power was ultimately what, what did for Paul Hurst. He, he tried to change too much too soon. He was far too, he, he took things too far in telling some of these players that you've done nothing for me yet. Forget the fact, Bart and Jonas Knudsen, you've just come back from a world cup. You've done nothing yet. And, uh, don't think the players were having him. So um, once once that's happened, it's very difficult to uh, to carry on. So he did. He didn't last long. And then we had Paul Lambert, who uh, I guess the, again alarm bells were ringing on the first day when his press conference. The press officer came in and said Paul is not going to be answering any questions about Norwich City and his Norwich City past, which seemed a little bit naive to me. It's which town have just hired one of Norwich's best ever managers. Just deal with the question. Um, deal with it once, say what you want to say, think about what you want to say. And then if someone keeps going for it, then you can say politely, I've answered that. Let's move on. But to say I'm not answering any questions about it at all was was a little naive, I thought. But um, even so, Paul Lambert won that PR battle uh, really well, didn't he, in those first few months? He'd got everybody believing that, you know, the dawn of a new era was here and the team remarkably got applauded on their way to relegation. And, and I had a decent relationship with Paul Lambert for those first year or so. You know, Ross, you were there. We, we got invited out to Germany and um, were made to really feel part of it during that pre-season, got involved in a, in a training ground match over there and stuff. But um, as I said earlier, that, that cycle 
that cycle always comes around, unfortunately. And uh, that, that ended on a bit of a sour note, you know, very, very reluctantly. That was during the middle of the pandemic, behind closed doors football, very weird time. And uh, after a great deal of thought, we as a newspaper ran that front page calling for Paul Lambert to go, which is probably one of the most difficult moments that I've had covering Ipswich because we made that decision knowing full well that Paul Lambert wasn't going to be sacked because we'd been told that loud and clear from, from the powers that be. So that made for a really difficult period where I was the man in the line of fire. It's all very well other people saying, run that front page. You're not the one looking in the whites of the other person's eyes. Uh, having to deal with the consequences of that. But um, I think we we rode that that storm reasonably well at that time. Yeah, and um, Paul Cook came in. Um, of course, what was it like? I know we've spoken about this a lot on the podcast, but behind closed doors games. And of course, Paul Cook came in during that time when, you know, there was lockdowns, COVID was still about. Um, and yeah, Paul Cook, you're not going to be actually meeting Paul Cook properly when he was announced you know you did the zoom interviews and stuff and you know once again a lot of the after games as well were on zoom as well so you didn't have that relationship face to face early doors of course you did get that during last season but that must have been a bit strange yeah I hadn't really thought about that to be honest Ross it was a really odd period cut soulless period covering football games of course we were very uh grateful of the fact that while everyone else was locked up at home we were one of the handful of people that were able to go to games during that period and that was a bit of a you know that really helped me and I think others in our industry kind of get get through that period but the games were weird you know it was just a reminder of of what value fans bring to football matches but in terms of yeah in terms of of getting a relationship off the ground I hadn't really considered that but you're right I think you know right now with Kieran McKenna I've been able to have odd little off the record chats here and there and podcasts and things and there's no, there's no replacement for being in person with someone and as I said before looking in the whites of their eyes and body language and and all that sort of stuff um and we didn't really get that with Paul Cook from from the start so that was a bit of a strange period um but yeah Paul Paul Cook was uh he, refreshingly honest and spoke probably a bit too much like a fan at times but you know we all know the story of that behind sort of demolition man and everything else that followed and um and he's another one that's that's been and gone under my watch unfortunately um we've probably mentioned this before but what was your reaction like when his voice cracks always happened you know him changing his voices like that must have been it must be a little bit i want to say off-putting but then you go oh he's just changed his voice here because on the club interviews they're always great you know fun to watch but you as a journalist, you know, watching that, of course, some of them were on Zoom, but just like, oh, he changed his voice there. What, what was your reaction all the time when it happened? Yeah, I think the more people spoke about it, the more conscious you were of, of that sort of happening. Um, the thing that got me with Paul Cook in, in an interview process that he'd always sort of talk about, you're not going to get me throwing people under the bus. And there was sometimes you get that sort of paranoia creeps in with managers where they're perceiving there to be a negative line of questioning where there isn't even if you can ask the most neutral question going they'll they'll still you know it's the sort of the bunker mentality can creep in sometimes and Paul would talk about you're not going to get me throwing lads under the bus and then in the next breath he'd be calling them Sunday league footballers who've won a competition to play at Portman Road so um that's something that I've come to learn is that you, you don't take things too personally it's an occupational hazard we're speaking to these managers when emotions are high, minutes after the final whistle sometimes, and you just uh, 
you're just the one there that has to be the uh, the verbal punch bag sometimes, and that's just the way it is. It is. And uh, well then, Stu, let's do a little bit more quick fire questions. And um, the standard, you know, your favourite play of seeing town, at, you know, covering town, favourite game, best moment, worst moment, and stuff like that. So let's start off with. Um, Let's actually, I know we're going to go back to a bad thing. What, what would you say has been the worst moment covering town? It's been a few few downs, but um, what sort of sticks out in your mind covering the club? Even, as you said, sometimes if your laptop doesn't work, your technology mm. doesn't work nowadays, you've got to rely on internet at football grounds. Um, what, what's been your worst moment? Yeah, I think games at Huddersfield and Charlton, which both have horrific Wi-Fi, I've had some real uh, cold sweat moments. I've had to sort of go outside and I've been sat cross-legged on on the concrete as the fans stream past desperately trying to hit the deadline and uh, people won't realize the sort of the adrenaline that's a role involved in those Tuesday nights and, and hitting those deadlines and then the fear that you get in the middle of the night at 3 a.m did I did I put the scoreline in the wrong way round or you convince yourself that you've done you've done everything wrong um Worst moments, I guess, if we're talking sort of professionally, away from sort of football results, the things that I've mentioned already, that that calling for Lambert to go, which was the first time I've ever sort of put my neck on the line in, in calling for a manager to go, which was a really reluctant thing to do and, and dealing with that afterwards. Um, and those that final six months of, of Mick McCarthy, really, I did, didn't really sort of revel in in, in those sort of questioning that, that I mentioned, but that was um, wasn't a particularly pleasant pleasant period uh, I know people have sort of said you know got a bit of praise for how we handled it at, at the time but didn't make it any any more enjoyable yeah and uh let's talk about players then we'll have to one of these days we'll have to go through all the players you've seen play for town that would be an interesting stat but I'm sure there's been hundreds thousands of town players who have played um because of all those loans all those other players so pick out a few of you know that really stand out for you as some of the best you've seen play for town well, I loved Christoph Berra. I'm a I'm a I'm a defender by by heart, and uh, I love a warrior. And Christoph Berra was an absolute warrior in in that team for Mick McCarthy. Someone who um, lost multiple teeth going up for for headers. Someone who could score a header at a set piece, which I love. Um, so, from on that end of the sort of playing scale, uh, I would I would mention him. Uh, and then in terms of sort of the more technical, enjoyable skillful players there'd be people like teddy bishop when he first burst on the scene and still can picture him up at blackpool as a 18 19 year old sort of dancing his way along the byline and, and getting an assist johnny williams i loved watching play um the way he would take big hits from players he, he'd, he'd let the ball he had that art of letting the ball sort of run across him and and taking a hit from a player, but he just bounced straight back up again and carry on playing. It probably went against him actually in terms of all the injuries he got. But I love watching Johnny Williams play. McGoldrick in his pomp again, another players with injuries, just silky smooth to watch. Um, and then up to current day, I mean Wes Burns, who who doesn't love a bit of pace, and I think uh, Ipswich fans have finally again have got got some some footballers I think if I was a young fan now watching Ipswich Town I'd be seeing some players that I'd want names on the back of my shirts people who get your bum bum off your seat and Wes Burns is certainly one of those so there's been there's been several over the years that I've enjoyed watching but there's a few for you I would say um 
some of the worst players, but we won't do that. That's a long list, probably. I'm sure you've seen a lot of um, bad mm-hmm. players at town. Um, but let's get into, um, once again, I'd love to see this stat, how many games you're covered as well, covering town. And once again, I'm sure that is, that's a big number. Well, have you got that there? You're looking down. Have you got it there? No. <laughs> um, I started to work it out. I, I don't know if you worked out, what, roughly 50 a season by the time you've put in cup games and pre-season and stuff. Uh, what's that? Times 11. Not quite at the thousand club yet, so that's that's a, a tally to, to aim for in the next few years. Yeah, so there's, there's so many games to pick out from, but what's sort of been your the highlights? You know, of course, the playoff season was fantastic, a lot of good games there. But any games that just personally to you as well that you just enjoyed, you know, writing about? You know, you had a good, you know, interview after the game, and just the whole day itself was just a good day to cover the club. Well, you would think. I know fans would automatically when you look back on that. I mean, the high, obviously, of the last few years has been that sixth-place finish and fans would automatically talk about Richard Chaplow's late winner at Watford, Noel Hunt's late winner at Charlton. Um, and they were great days to be part of and you feel like you're documenting sort of history when those come along. But when there's late goals like that, that makes it a bit more stressful for us guys that are trying to uh, change rapidly change their intros and the whole narrative around the pieces that we're writing. So... Um, obviously, the, the the home game against Norwich, I just I can still remember the atmosphere pre-match f- for that game. Um, a personal one for me was was going to Old Trafford in the Cup and just walking up the steps there. And I, I did a bit on on air with BBC Suffolk before the game, and I just remember standing there with my with, with the big sort of radio headphones on and looking out across Old Trafford and thinking, "Wow, you know, if I'd have told my." 10 year old self that I'd be here working at Old Trafford that was that was a real sort of pinch pinch me moment um so yeah there's, there's a few highlights for you definitely and um let's talk about away games then Stu you've gone across the country I know you you did the infamous Blackpool Carlisle um I know you stayed up in Blackpool um for that game of course we then played Carlisle um I also did that as a fan and uh, doing that it wasn't great because of course we lost against Carlisle <laughs> an extra time in in the uh, the cup then um there's been loads you know once again replays in the FA cup uh traveled across the country some great stadiums as well we've gone to you know St James's Park when they were down um mm-hmm. but what sticks out are your favorite away days of course recently because of league 1 we've been going to Morecambe we've been on the Fleetwood Accrington um we didn't do Barrow because we won't get into that uh, but mm-hmm. yeah what what ones stick out for you Stu? Favourite away days? Um, anywhere close-ish. The travelling yeah. is takes it out of you a little bit in this job. And I know fans are doing this for, for fun. And I've, I've got nothing but respect for, for the guys that go home and away every week because it, it takes it, it takes its toll after a while. I think I've probably done 100,000 plus miles covering football matches now since I've, I've done it. Um, so Ipswich is geographically challenged, of course. Um, I like the good old-fashioned grounds like Forest or QPR, um, places like that. I, I really enjoy going to those. Ellen Road is somewhere where things have always seemed to happen. I've mentioned that Mick McCarthy anecdote the night that Paul Hurst got sacked after, after that. Um, Brighton and Bristol City, I think, are good examples of how to do good new stadiums. Uh, obviously, Ashton Gate has kind of been redeveloped and really well um the amex is i think is one of the better modern stadiums um 
But yeah, that's, I mean, St. James, St. James's Park, you mentioned that. I also got the same sort of feelings from covering a game there as I, as I did going to Old Trafford because that's just a football cathedral right in the middle of the, the city centre. It's like a religion up, up there in Newcastle. But um, no, it's, it's a real privilege to get to go to all these different grounds across the country. I, I don't know where I'm at in the 92 club at the moment. Must be in the 70s, 80s, something, something like that. So... Um, yeah, hopefully some some more to tick off uh, at the top end of, of things in, in years to come, hopefully. Let's talk then, Stu, a bit. Let's have a little bit of a giggle. Uh, let's talk about your funniest moment um, covering the club. Uh, once again, it could be a personal thing to you or, you know, it's a funny thing that happens with a, you know, a manager press conference. Of course, sometimes you do, you know, interview the players as well. I know you've done it a few times for uh, other features for our magazine, Kings of Anglia magazine, other different features. I know there's a nice, really great interview you did with Bart, Bart Spierkowski, when... You did it at his home, and of course, his kids were there as well, and everything. So, what has been your funniest moments in terms of maybe covering a game or just an interview? Take it away. I think the strangest place I've interviewed someone would be Jimmy Bullard at the height of Jimmy Bullard mania when Ipswich he'd, he'd had that fantastic end of season loan spell. There was a huge clamour for him to sign permanently, and if you remember, it kind of it was a transfer proper transfer saga that rolled on for the whole of. August, I think Jimmy was involved in some sort of legal dispute about his cancellation of his contract at Hull. And eventually they signed him late and um, he went to do some signing session. I can't remember. It was a shop in Ipswich, but that was the place that I went to interview him. And it was the, the shop was so packed with fans that I had to be sort of ushered in a side door and I ended up interviewing him in a changing room out the back. It was like the curtain drawn and we were in a, like a, a tiny little changing room, nose to nose, interviewing Jimmy Bullard while people were standing on the other side wearing Jimmy Bullard wigs. Um, that was a weird one. Similar, similar vibe with Mick McCarthy after Ipswich had just conceded a last-minute goal at Bristol City. The other manager was in the press room at the time. Mick was not in the mood for waiting for the opposition manager to finish. You could cut the tension with a knife. So again, I was ushered in. We opened up the first side door we could find and it was basically a broom cupboard. Um, again, very tight. Uh, near Mick McCarthy, nose to nose, and he was absolutely fuming. So I remember, I remember that one uh, in terms of an interview. But um, yes, yeah, there's, there's been some strange ones along the way. I mean, I mentioned that getting off on the wrong footing with Paul Jewell um, that preseason in Holland. I had been due to kind of travel on the coach to the various locations that Ipswich were playing in Holland, and then. Uh, it was then said to me that, no, we don't want you on the team coach. And I was without any form of transport in the middle of nowhere in Holland. Thankfully, James Pullen, the kit man, took pity on me and uh, said, meet me around the side of the hotel. And he opened up the back of the van and I got bundled in with all the uh, with all the spare balls and cones and everything with no seatbelt, nothing. And uh, I rattled around in the back of there till we pulled up at, at wherever Ipswich were playing. That's love. That's great. That behind the scenes on Stuart Watson do away. Let's talk about um, you know, because we're on Ireland, we had to go to Ireland a lot under Mick McCarthy. Of course, you mentioned the Paul Lambert Germany trip. Um, as you said, Paul Jewell Holland. So that's another good sort of opportunity to just go abroad for free as well. You know, covering the club. Yeah, we did. We did Ireland quite a lot. There was some. Um, there was some late nights there with uh, with Johnny Ogle, the former press officer now now at Chelsea. We had some. We had some good times in Dublin. Um, the very first pre-season tour I did was actually to Portugal when Roy Keane was manager it was uh, I think Derek Davis was was uh, on his holidays at the time and I got the late call up the club said yeah Roy's, Roy's willing to speak to some press and uh, 
I went to put the south of Portugal and back in a day to interview Roy Keane and um, very nervous at the time to go and speak to Roy, but uh, plucked up the courage to talk to him, seeing as you know they were keen to show off how good the training facilities were, um, to talk about Saipan and 2002 and, and the, the fallout, obviously, with, with Mick McCarthy at that time and everything. And um, he, he was great. He was, he was very good-humoured, and uh, I saw a, a different, more relaxed side to Roy Keane, maybe just before the start of the season, before the pressure of results had uh, started. This is always a good time of year to make hay while the sun shines. Uh, you know, before we go into the heat of battle, you can forge some some relationships now before you start having to give people marks out of 10 and, and critiquing performances. Indeed, and... Um, let's talk about just articles in general, because you know you've once again you've written so many articles through the years. Um, I always want to know if there's been any like weird sort of articles you had to write, just some strange ones where you just like it just it's just segueing into or it just connects the dots with another story. What what would you say stands out for you? Just stories that you've or actually make this question a bit different, like stories that you've really been proud of, or you know you, you finally got an interview with Marcus Evans after that many years. But what other articles have you been proud of? Or just also go, that's a bit weird, but I like it as well. Yeah, I think I think anything like that where you, you're able to kind of get an exclusive interview that that other people would want. The Evans one is is a is a good example. Um someone that for a long time people didn't even know what he looked like, let alone spoke to. So I was the first person, sort of independent member of the media to get a face to face interview with Marcus Evans, which I was very proud of. And, and another one sort of in the more earlier days was was the Michael Chopper interview about, about his gambling addiction. Again, there was a lot of people wanting to speak to Michael about that. Um, but I was able to be the one sort of uh, selected to do that. And I took that as a compliment for the, some of the sort of long-term diplomacy, doing the right things consistently over a period of time puts you in a position to be able to to get those interviews really trying to be fair objective balanced uh, empathetic always remembering that there's a human being that you're writing about at the other end of things I think sometimes we forget that um, as football fans and journalists that these aren't robots out there playing these are human beings that have got things going on in their lives so I th- I've always kind of been proud that hopefully my body of work has meant that when these opportunities when these people decide that they do want to talk that uh sometimes hopefully you you know i've been chosen to do them so they, they'd be two things that i'd be proud of for sure definitely and uh let's talk then Stu, about some moments you're sort of your best moments covering the club you know there's been some very bad downs of course you know relegation to to leave one was not great um but there's been some some good days as well covering the club so what, what sort of sticks out for you Poor. I haven't exactly been blessed with the best era of Ipswich Town, have I, Ross? It's not. It's, no. it's not uh, hard to look back at some of my predecessors that have had the, the. You know, I've now covered Ipswich for eleven seasons. You think you could throw an eleven season blanket over the period that included the sort of seventy eight and eighty one, and uh, even sort of the late nineties, and, and then you know promotion in two thousand and fifth in the Premier League. And then suddenly along I come and I didn't even get like that. It was the season after they got to the semi-finals of the League Cup. So it was the season after that. So there hasn't been a huge amount to shout about other than that sixth place finish. I saw um, I saw the stat the other day that I think there's something only like 
five teams left in the Football League that haven't been to the new Wembley. And two of them are Ipswich and Colchester, the two teams that I've I've followed during that period. So um, it's probably made me a better journalist covering either a lot of downs or prolonged periods of greyness, just complete apathy, things like that have, have really sort of tested me in terms of being able to cover stuff. But um, the highs, I guess, would be the obvious ones that we've mentioned, the, the playoff season. Um and hopefully the biggest high is still to come because in Kira McKenna, I think Ipswich Town have, uh, have got a real good one now. And uh, under the new ownership and the, the new drive of Mark Ashton behind the scenes, we, we hope, as we always do, that next season is the one. And uh, I'm just really hopeful that this this club is, uh, is going to take off again. Well said, Stu. Well said. And um, let's talk then, Stu, about how your job has changed. It's changed a lot um, with 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 the with social media, with what we're doing now, videos, podcasts. Um, how, for you, how have you dealt with that? You know, having to adapt to different things. Um, of course, laptops have improved. You know, mobile phones. You said you had to ring up about your copy. Now it's here, right in front of you. So, how have you adapted to that? And uh, what has changed massively? Yeah, it sounds like the dark ages, doesn't it? I think um, the com- our company might have been slightly behind the times in terms of modern tech at that moment in time. But that was, yeah, 2006 and I didn't have a laptop and I was phoning copy back over and I wasn't on Twitter. Twitter wasn't even a thing at that stage. And, um, you know, so it's changed a hell of a lot. Um, and then along comes the sort of digital age and now we can we've got all the analytic tools not only to see who's looking at what stories and when, but how long they stay on it and the value to advertisers. And there's so much information at our fingertips and podcasts. We started doing those. Then we did a live podcast, which still blows my mind. And we're doing things like this. So I feel very fortunate that I've kind of straddled two very different eras for this industry at the time I have done. I came came in at the very back end of what I guess you would consider the sort of the glory years for, for print journalism um, almost that sort of uh, Fleet Street mentality. And and uh, I learned off some really good people in those early stages, but I was young enough to be able to kind of adapt to the very rapid changing pace of this sort of digital era sort of thing. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm really pleased that I've kind of got some of those traditional journalism tools behind me, as well as being able to kind of adapt to, to the, the newer way of doing things, hopefully. And, and I've still got to keep doing that because... Uh, it will look completely different in another another five, ten years' time. And I don't want to be that that old dinosaur of the newsroom where yourself or the next youngster coming through says, what, you don't even have TikTok, granddad? <laughs> um, so, yeah, we, we keep adapting and, um, and we'll have to keep doing it. Yes, dude, don't worry, we, we won't be doing TikTok. Like, even me at 25, <laughs> I, I don't have any interest in that. And I maybe I should do it. It's maybe my sort of age range, but no, I'm leaving that for the, the kids who wants to dance and all that sort of stuff. But let's quickly mention Twitter really, too, because once again, some people who don't go to the games, they follow your tweets, you know, follow your, you know, minute by minute, what's happening. I know there's a lot of praise for you. A lot of people get told me like, oh, you know, if I'm out of games, I follow Stu's tweets. So how has that been like, you know, doing that and being there at live games, hoping your internet is fine um, and just how quick you do it sometimes as well? Yeah, as I said before, the adrenaline is flying during 90 minutes of of the game because you know there is multiple windows open on your laptop. You're trying to flip between 
Twitter, between a match report, between uh, various other things that you're writing during the game, player ratings you might be putting together. Now, alongside sort of Andy Warren is my, is my work husband, we managed to kind of share a lot of those those duties out quite nicely. But in the early days, that was it was a one man band, and I was trying to juggle all of those balls at the same time, and it, it can be uh, can be quite stressful. But I, I enjoy the Twitter side of things obviously there's no edit function on twitter and speed is of the essence so the odd mistake does creep in you get you put the score forget to update the score line on it from time to time and you're kicking yourself but um it's kind of nice to know that especially now it's just so global and you realize how global the Ipswich Town fan base is and it always blows my mind when we do these podcasts whether it be twitter that you get messages from from Norway from America from wherever uh, people are just going yeah i'm following whatever they're doing in their lives they're, they're able to kind of follow their their love of ipswich town and i'm and i and i'm able to kind of facilitate that so um yeah it's a pleasure and a privilege and and i don't underestimate it definitely mate and uh, we're going to end the video in a minute with um just saw sort of any advice for any inspiring journalists out there? I know there's loads who have been wanting to get into sports journalism. Some are still, you know, they're currently doing news and maybe want to jump into sports. Um, but I want to quickly mention, this is going to be a random questions to shorthand. Now, mm. I don't know, maybe explain it a little bit for, for viewers out there who don't know what shorthand is, but that's a, a very good skill. I probably would never know how to use it because I just won't even bother trying to use it. But it's probably a good skill for you just to write notes down when you're speaking to a manager or speaking to anybody. Um but do you still use it a lot nowadays? Not as much as I used to, because obviously now we can stick recording devices down in front of managers. And I think the need to be word perfect with your transcriptions is more important now, because I think there's so many other people attending press conferences that people will, will see if there's any... Uh, inaccuracies in your copy compared to others and managers will pick you up on being misquoted or, or whatever but um you know that there, there are times when you're doing stuff over the phone that, that that is required so shorthand if people haven't seen it is basically a sort of a um dashes and dots and various different sort of uh yeah short short shortened versions of letters that you then put together that, that enables you it's like another language really that enables you to write things quicker and read things back quicker so um yeah, I could do a hundred words a minute of that um, when I first first qualified, but it would be it would be nowhere near as quick as that now. But yeah, I, I would say to aspiring young journalists, make sure you still get your your NCTJ qualifications. Some of the uh, some of the courses out there have it as part part of it, and and some of them don't. Uh, so make sure you if you're going to do a university degree in journalism, get one that's NCTJ accredited. Get your law pass on your law, pass on your uh, public affairs, pass on your NCTJ and all that sort of stuff because that will, it means you won't have to go and do that again after, after you've uh, graduated. I, I still think those I might be called old-fashioned there in terms of need it, saying you need those skills in sports journalism, but, but I think they're a really good grounding for everybody. Yeah, I was so impressed when I saw shorthand for the first time. I think it was just being with you one day and, you know, it was in the car and I just saw your notepads and just filling it. And I was just like, what is this squiggly lines doing? And then you, of course, explained it. But I was just so impressed how quick you were doing it. Um, but you've already given some advice there. But any more advice for any inspiring sports journalists out there? Of course, nowadays, a lot there's opportunities doing it at football clubs, doing it for, you know, your local newspapers. But there's just a lot online now as well. There's a lot of competition out there. But just any advice you'll give... People who are watching this video, 
Yeah, I guess when I was starting out, as I said at the very start, I, I went out there and did a lot of stuff voluntarily because you've got to stand out. Again, it's a very competitive area to get into and you've got to do something that makes you stand out from the others. Of course, now in the social media and internet world that we live in, you can create your own and, and, and publish your own content in your own right and build up a bit of a following yourself. And, and maybe that's finding a niche and covering something that, that others don't. Um, what other advice can I give? Um, I talked about sort of, I think one piece of advice that I'd give my younger self is to think about the long game sometimes a little bit more. If we're talking about diplomacy and the specifics of being a regional football reporter who covers the same club day in, day out is to sometimes think about, okay, publishing this story now, you might get some short-term gains, but think about the long-term losses sometimes and that's what I talked about earlier is it then will you be the one that's chosen when the club says yes Marcus Evans will talk now or yes Michael Chopra will talk now um, sometimes you've just got to think very carefully about what what you can lose by publishing a no doubt interesting story um, so that that would be one don't th take things too personally which which I mentioned earlier you're never going to please all of the people all of the time and it's a very difficult tightrope to tread when you're kind of caught between pressures from your sports editor and your editor to produce good content, the club and the manager and the CEO who expect you to kind of want to be on, on their side and then the supporters as well. So you're always in the middle. And as long as you're getting criticism from both sides of the coin, that you're too positive or you're in the club's pocket or you're too negative and you can't wait to sharpen the knife. I've always found that whilst I kind of get both those accusations concurrently that is to me is a, is a decent indicator that you're you're somewhere in the middle but um yeah there would, there would be a few bits um but talking about Mick McCarthy and sort of sharpening me up just um it's not what you say but how you say it sometimes and sometimes you have to read the room there might be a valid question but is now the right time to ask it um you can tell by a manager's demeanour if this is this is going to end up with a custard pie and a and a and a proverbial fu. So sometimes it's, it's you just have to read the room, and that that comes with the experience at times. But um, it's a great industry. It's um, there can be some long hours. It's very difficult to to switch off. You might not get the biggest financial rewards going, but if you love your sport, um, and this is something you really want to do, then then go after it. Would be my um, be my advice. Oh, well said, Stu. Well said indeed. And um, the final thing really is just to add, really, Stu, is, and I always do this on loads of different videos, but I always like this. One word you would describe your time, you know, so far covering the club. I'll put you on a the spot there, Stu, but one word. One to, word. Yeah. One word. Can Doesn't I go with a few words. more? Best is yeah, yet okay. to come. Let's go with that. Yeah. yeah. There we go. Yeah, always want to keep learning and improving. You're talking about sort of giving people advice there. I've, you know, I certainly don't sit here at the age of 37 thinking I've done done it. I've cracked it. I've, uh, there's a lot, lot more I want to do in this this job, and um, hopefully my best is yet to come, and Ipswich Town's best is yet to come. Hopefully, so um, yeah, fingers crossed, eh, Ross? That this season can this season can be better, and uh, I'll finally get that sort of season in the sun and some nice endless relentless positivity for a little while that would be nice 
Yeah, I know town fans, they deserve some success, but still you do as well. And um, us just covering the football club, we want to see this football club back where they belong, um, playing the bigger teams and playing a, a higher division. But Stu, it's been a pleasure. A really good chat, my friend. Any other business before we wrap up? No, I don't think so, Ross. Um, thank you for having me. And I hope I haven't bored the pants off of people. And uh, I'm sure there'll be a few more people that you want to do this, this feature with that uh, I, I'd certainly love to hear from. So um, thanks again. It's a pleasure, my friend. Some great insight there from Stu. Hope everyone at home have enjoyed listening, watching. I'll be back for one of these videos very soon. You never know. Could it be Andy Warren next? Mike Bacon? Even Brenner from BBC Radio Something. That'd be great to speak to him. He's been he's been through it as well. Um, but there we go then. Hope you've enjoyed. We'll be back for many more videos to come. See you then. From true crime to football, Brexit to football. more great podcasts from Archon, head to audioboom.com slash channel slash Archon, head to audioboom.com slash channel slash Archon.